Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association, the only association for those with a professional interest in neuromarketing. Visit www.nmsba.com for events and membership details. And Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Email pmcgee at decisionbreakers.com to see how they can help you win your war in-store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and I'm speaking today with Carolyn Yoon, professor of marketing at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, and one of the biggest proponents of the inclusion of neuroscience into marketing research. Her research focuses on understanding psychological and neural mechanisms underlying judgment and decision processes and she's been published in the journals of neuroscience, marketing research, consumer research, personality and social psychology, and psychological science. She's also a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science, a status that's awarded for sustained outstanding scientific contributions to psychology. I met Carolyn at the Neuromarketing World Forum in Rome this past February, where I had the honor of serving as conference chairman and saw Carolyn's very enlightening and highly engaging talk on consumer neuromarketing, after which I asked if she would share her thoughts and ideas with us on Shoppernomics, to which she was kind enough to oblige. But before we get into all of that, Carolyn, welcome to Shoppernomics. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure, for sure. Um, I'm, I'm curious, is it true that you coined the term consumer neuroscience? That is correct. As far as I know, it was me. Um, before that, the whole field was referred to as neuromarketing, and that was a term that was coined by my colleague, Ala Smits, at um, Erasmus University. And because the term neuromarketing uh, was somewhat controversial, uh, we tended to sort of shy away from it. And I thought that consumer neuroscience sort of highlighted the fact that we were really interested in consumer behavior uh, more than perhaps other aspects of marketing. Uh, very good. So I, I knew that you coined the term. I didn't know why we needed a new term. And that makes perfect sense. Um, and, I'm, and, I'm, and in fact, I'm reading a book by that title, Consumer Neuroscience, which I hope you're getting royalties for the use of that term. Um, no, <laughs> that's just fine. <laughs> okay. Um, I also understand now, again, we met in Rome just this past February. I heard you're going back to Rome already. Um, what's, what's going on there? Well, this time it's for vacation. Last time I was there literally for 32 hours Ooh. and I was also trying to meet with, you know, uh, research colleagues and so on. So this time mostly for a vacation, although I will also be giving a talk at the University of Salento in Lecce uh, in Italy. And um, also there I'll be talking about neuroforecasting. I never heard of Lecce, but just the word just conjures up beautiful images Yes, I've never been there, but I hear it's beautiful, well, like I'm, all of Italy. Yeah, like all of Italy, exactly. Um, yeah, <laughs> wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm sure you'll have a terrific time. Okay, so we're going to discuss two topics today. Um, the first is on the gap between academia and industry in neuromarketing, um, a topic very near and dear to me. And the second is on neuroforecasting, 
for using neuroscience to forecast shopper behavior. And, uh, and I'm excited to speak with you on both of these topics. So, so let's begin with the academia industry gap in neuromarketing, or, or really any area where academic and industry partnerships might make sense. Um, so, so to start, let me just ask you, what is it about this topic that interests you, and, and how come you chose to speak about it at the Neuromarketing World Forum? Well, uh, this topic is very near and dear to my heart as well. I really strongly believe that both academia and industry in neuromarketing would be better off if there was more communication uh, and collaboration between the two. And I chose to speak about this at the Neuromarketing World Forum because it's an event that's attended by both academics and practitioners, although more practitioners than academics. So it seemed to be a really a great venue to directly address industry practitioners, which I really don't get to do. And they're both vendors and clients of neuromarketing services there. Yeah. And this is the right audience to talk about bridging the gap. That makes all the sense in the world. Um, and, and, you know, I said it's near and dear to my heart because during my career in, um, you know, leading shopper insights and consumer insights, I have... Um, extended the olive branch to academia on several occasions mm -hmm. and, um, and, and honestly never had a great experience. Um, ah. I've had, you know, one or two good experiences and mm -hmm. then most of them were just dismal failures um, for, for reasons which I, I, <laughs> I saw in your presentation, um, you know, aren't, aren't unique to, to my experiences. So uh, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be fun to talk about these. Um, yes. All right. So, I think, yeah, I think what, you know, I have to say is probably generally applicable to any sort of, you know, academia and industry collaborations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I, you know, we're both familiar with the Marketing Science Institute. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what that organization is all about, is bridging the gap. Um, but, but, you know, as many advocates as there are out there, it just remains a challenge. And, and for, for reasons which unfortunately make sense and I think yes. will be difficult to overcome, but, yes. uh, but nonetheless, I think, I think the effort is worth a try. And, and, uh, and so I, I applaud you for being, you know, another one of those advocates out there and, uh, and for bringing it to that forum and, and now to this forum. So, so with that as background, um, you know, tell us what are some of the challenges and, and opportunities with academic and practitioner partnerships as you see it? Okay. Um, as you say, the challenges are really considerable. <laughs> and um, there are different goals, incentives, and deliverable, deliverables associated, you know, with academia versus practice. And um, it the goal of academia is really about, you know, advancing scientific knowledge. And what we are required to do is to basically generate uh, top flight, you know, journal publications. And that's how we are promoted. Whereas in, in the industry, it's really about, you know, the top line and the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And so those uh, goals are incompatible um, more often than not. And uh, the incentives that, uh, go along with those goals, of course, are different as well. And and the timelines, you know, so an academic might spend three to five years getting a research project to um, where it appears in print. 
and for you know a business that timeline is completely unacceptable right mm-hmm. uh, um, I mean you have to basically you know serve uh, clients needs if you're a marketing research company that is yeah. or you have real problems that you need to address right away yes. um, so th- that's you know a real issue and then a couple of other you know minor, seemingly minor changes that turn out to be pretty cool. At least, you know, what I found is that um, oftentimes there are single points of contact uh, within industry and within academia. Mm. If the academic moves universities, it's not that big of a problem because oftentimes we can just take our work with us. Oh, that's good but, to know. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, for an industry person, if they leave the job, I mean, they go on to a different organization or doing something else within the same organization, and uh, there is no one to um, fill that void. And so, um, you know, not having some sort of, uh, not having deep-rooted investment by um, the company turns out to be a problem. Mm. So I think a team within companies would be helpful, but um, that is just uh, not something that people think about in advance of, you know, um, when you're starting off a project. Yes. And uh, then also the um, partnerships or collaborations require uh, a lot of, you know, memoranda of agreements or uh, <laughs> non-disclosure agreements and so on, which means legal teams get involved on both sides. And uh, this is excruciatingly slow and cumbersome. And sometimes you just can't even converge on what would be acceptable terms, because often an academic will want the right to publish at the end of, you know, at all. Yes. And and businesses are uncomfortable with that, right? They want to know, like, what is going to be disseminated before they sign off on that. So you require a great deal. I think there needs to be trust and uh, a mutual understanding that people will, on both sides, will do the right thing. But, you know, that is hard to achieve. I, you know, I, I, I loved the way you just answered that question because what you did is gave a nice balance of the issues on both sides. Mm-hmm. Because as a practitioner, um, you know, I, I always blamed academia for failed partnerships. Um, <laughs> not, not really knowing from their perspective, you know, what are my challenges. Now, at the end of the day, you know, it, it, I just kind of, um, you know, landed on the realization that in academia, you know, your goal is to advance human knowledge and in, you know, corporate America, your goal is to advance the bottom line. And, and, and those are just, you know, seldom compatible, uh, you know, for the reasons that you, that you described. And, um, and you talked about the timelines are incompatible. Uh, you talked about the incentives, incentives are incompatible. Um, and, um, and, and the objectives are, are, are not always aligned. Um, but you also talked about some of the, the realities on the corporate side where people moving and, and changing jobs. And absolutely, you know, you've got to have that, that corporate champion. Um, mm-hmm. And you also have to have the kind of that long-term orientation. Um, That's right. You know, because you, at this point, you know, you've got to expect that people are going to be in a job for, for a year. Not that they're always in the job for a year, but, but you should probably go into something expecting that. Mm-hmm. And so how do I, you know, uh, structure this partnership so that it can survive that, that person moving on? 
Um, and then you also talked about the legal department's, uh, you know, involvement and mm-hmm. all the limitations that they put on, which, which sometimes, because of the publish, um, you know, uh, desire on the part of academia, you know, it just makes it, it, it kind of takes, takes the incentive away for them. So, so mm-hmm. I, thanks for answering the question the way you did, because I, I, it was very, very well balanced. Um, so how, you know, if, if there is such a thing, or if you've if experienced such a thing, how would you describe uh, what might be a successful partnership? So for a partnership to be successful, each of the parties need to benefit, right, um, and get something that they wouldn't uh, be able to otherwise. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, for instance, a benefit to an academic might be access to data from the company. Uh, given that if you look at most academic studies, at least in the behavioral um, sciences, it's you know woefully underpowered. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the ability to, as I said before, to publish the findings in the journals, ultimately. Right. And uh, a benefit to the company might be the insights that are generated by, you know, talented academics with cutting-edge research skills. And um, the company would get first dibs on the findings in the form of a white paper or a presentation to relevant managers within the company. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, get a head start and they're also, you know, sort of contributing to the social good in terms of, you know, uh, knowledge and best practices in this space. Yes. Um, so are, are there any examples that you're aware of, of partnerships that have worked well? Yeah, uh, yes, uh, there are a few. Um, not too many, but one example that I know of that seems to have worked out pretty well is, um, a partnership between, uh, researchers at Temple University's, uh, Fox School of Business. Yes. That's led by uh, Vinod Venkatraman and Angelica DeMocha and the U.S. Postal Service. Mm. And so the USPS, uh, provided funding to, uh, cover some of the overhead and the scanning costs and so on. Uh, and, um... In return, the academic researchers, they conducted a study around a topic that was of real interest to the USPS, which is really how do um, consumers respond to direct mail in, in the you know, traditional form, like paper you know, uh, copies, mm-hmm. versus in, um, when it's the digitally delivered. Right. And so they are seeing that, you know, the the mail volume is going down over time uh, because of the digital delivery. And they wanted to know how, you know, is, you know, when is it one format better than the other, for instance? Yes. And um, how do um, you know, how are the responses different? And does that lead to differential memorability of the messages? The same message, just, you know, different formats. Hmm. And uh, they do indeed find that, um, you know, some interesting findings, which is not published yet, uh, but the, um, the, the Temple um, researchers, they provided USPS uh, with a white paper uh, with the results. They were really happy with it and signed off, like, on all of the, um, uh, the rights, I guess, uh, so to speak, for the researchers to then publish the findings in a journal. And the paper is currently under review at a a top marketing journal. So this has been a successful partnership insofar as each party sort of ended up uh, with what they were ultimately, you know, interested in. And then um, 
it was successful, uh, I know, because they have a couple of other uh, future projects planned. Excellent. And, and um, it's funny you mentioned Temple because, um, you know, when I worked at Campbell Soup, we were right across the, the, the river from Temple. And uh, oh. we, we partnered with them on a project uh, using predictive markets. Um, uh-huh. and, uh, and, and that was extremely helpful to have the academic partnership you know, and, and we were, you know, well aware um, that there was this desire to publish at the back end, but that was fine. You know, it, it, it met our requirements as well. And we also had um, Wharton across, across the river, and, um, and I did a wonderful project with them on uh, building a model that would forecast uh, short and long-term volume for breakthrough innovation. Uh-huh. Um, and that was just oh my gosh, it was it was wonderful, wonderful work, and and so those are two examples where it it did work out well. Um, yes. So so it is possible, I guess is the lesson. Um, yes. It, it, I don't know that it's always possible. I think you're just gonna. There are some topics uh, or situations where it's just like you know what we're at an impasse here. We can't make it work, but but not not to not keep trying. That's correct. So I was involved in something, starting up something like this, and I sort of hit a wall at some point because mm-hmm. uh, it took, the NDAs took about nine months. Oh, and gosh. in that time, you know, people left uh, the company and so on. And the grad students that we wanted working on this, you know, they graduated. <laughs> um, and so right now we're sort of, you know, at a point, it's like, I don't, we don't even really have the manpower to put on this, you know, project. Right. And so it's stalled and we don't know if we're going to go forward with it, even though all the, the other pieces are now in place. Right. Right. Oh, what a shame you got so yes. far. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so let's say you're a marketing or, research practitioner and you want to partner with an academic institution, um, you know, how would you even go about finding a partner that specializes in your area of interest? Oh, wow. That's um, really a tough thing currently, Mm. you know, and I think that that is one of the roadblocks. So you almost have to get lucky in asking around or, you know, and there are uh, two ways, but uh, neither one is so great, right? So you read <laughs> some, you know, um, you read uh, articles in the journals right. and try to identify people that way. But, you know, they may be fantastic researchers, but, you know, personality-wise, it may turn out that you don't want to work with, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, those individuals, yep. right? And, uh, and it would require a lot of um, research talking to people to figure out who the right people might be and then contacting those investigators, initiating conversations. So there are a lot of blind alleys probably there. So it's not efficient. Or you can go to an academic conference like um, the Neuro uh, Marketing World Forum that we uh, met at, or there are other conferences that are more academically oriented, but nonetheless, we'll see a few uh, practitioners uh, come to them. For yes. instance, the Interdisciplinary Symposium on Decision Neuroscience, or even the Society for Neuroeconomics annual meetings. And um, basically, you know, there isn't really a good place for both mm. to meet, right? Yeah. So some of some of us recently have started talking about, it, at least you know, my uh, academic colleagues and I've been talking about perhaps organizing organizing a 
consortium of academics and practitioners to facilitate these collaborations and partnerships. And um, so there would even be like for academics who might want to do one time, you know, consulting projects that don't involve, you know, publications that might be feasible as well, even though that tends not to be of uh, interest to academics by and large. Yeah. but this requires high startup costs, uh, especially in terms of time and a small group of you know, people to do the work and also get buy-in from a critical mass of companies and academics as well. So how might something that, like that work? Would it be like this online forum where practitioners can say, hey, I'm interested in, in partnering on such and such topic? Uh, and yes. at the same time, academics might post and say, hey, we're looking for data on such and such topic, we're looking to partner with a company with, with that type of data. Is that how it would be like this open forum where people can you know, choose among topics of interest on either side? I think that can be you know, one aspect of it, but yeah. you could also have you know, get-togethers uh, or you know, meetings where uh, there, is a lot of, there are a lot of conversations and open dialogues. Because yes. I think that's really what is needed. We don't even know what you know, practitioners know or vice versa, right? Sure. So you need to just you know, sit down and learn about one another. And that's sort of how I have um, been able to uh, talk to practitioners. Like the work that, you know, practitioners do, I think is fascinating. And it's actually, you know, really these are um, problems, real world problems that require, you know, answers. And oftentimes, you know, academics work on theoretically motivated questions, which are, of course, very, very interesting and useful as well. But, you know, I think it's also possible to merge the two to advance knowledge. Yeah, I like that idea because it's it's it goes beyond just simply matchmaking, and and helps, you know, it, it creates forms for dialogue where, you know, there it, it would just create a greater understanding of the issues on both sides, um, mm-hmm. and, and you know, ultimately we'll come up with some I'm sure creative solutions to those challenges. Right. Um, very cool. Yeah. So I mean, in my case, um, I found partnerships in two ways. One, um, and and I think you know, kind of sort of related to the two that you did. I I often read academic papers on topics of interest and I would just reach out to the author and say, you know, hey, might you be interested? And and oftentimes they were not. Mm -hmm. Um, um, But then, you know, tactic number two was say, okay, well, you know, are you aware of any of your contemporaries who might be? And and I've always been impressed. Maybe I just got lucky um, Mm -hmm. or maybe this is a universal truth among academicians but but um, you guys seem to be really really well networked. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've always been given some really great references um, by folks. E- even if I I knew someone from Wharton, I can that that was completely unrelated, um, and and wouldn't be a relevant partner. I could just say, hey, you know, do you happen to know anybody who who um, kind of you know specializes in this area? And you know, so a name always comes. Top of mind. And so, you know, just make a few of those phone calls. Eventually, you're going to find your way there. But I always thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if this was online directory? (laughs) (laughs) You know, basically three things, you know, or maybe four things. Who, what's their contact information? What's their area of specialty? And is the partnership something of interest? Yeah. Um, But but I think we're a long time from that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So... 
Yeah, I you know if someone would create uh, create such a consortium, it would be wonderful. But we were just thinking we probably we I don't know who the we are, but you know we'll have to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, count me in if you, if you need volunteers. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so let's say one way or another, you've identified a candidate for partnership. So mm-hmm. how would you recommend approaching them? Um, let's say now now you're a corporate side or you know you're from industry and you want to approach academia how, how would you do that well I think what you described is really the best way that is you call up folks and gauge interest and then also get referrals because I think most acad- academics would be happy to uh, talk to practitioners mm-hmm. so uh, and help out where you know however they can yeah okay and and are there agendas typically full for, you know, the foreseeable future, meaning, um, hey, I'm interested in partnering with you, but, you know, I've got, uh, you know, pretty much a full schedule for the next nine months. Let's talk mm-hmm. after that. Um, or is that often going to be the case or not so much? I don't think so. And if someone says that, it's not happening. You know? <laughs> so, okay. right, yeah, right. Uh, so that's like code for, you know, never um, <laughs> in my view. Right, right. Uh, so I think if it is a, an interesting enough project, you'll see uh, immediate enthusiasm, you know, okay. or it will just kind of fizzle out. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, so continuing down this path of you're a marketer or a researcher and you want to, you want to partner. Um, Mm -hmm. So you, you found someone, you've reached out, you've, you've engaged in the conversation. uh, You've got someone who's interested in partnering. And, and, and I think for me, this is the big question. Um, I've got a couple more after this, but I think this is the big one. Mm -hmm. What incentives might you use to motivate someone in academia to partner with you? I think research funding and interesting data will do it. And the ability to publish, I really should yes. um, highlight that. And this could be, you know, in disguised form. It doesn't always have to be, you know, in, uh, you, need to, you don't need to divulge all the sensitive information or anything that's proprietary. And perhaps the practitioners don't realize that. Mm-hmm. But that's really it. It's not going to be money, you know. Or, um, <laughs> yes, I've learned that. I've learned that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, an interesting or intriguing question, um, you know, good data, these are the, the incentives that I think would be motivating. Yeah. Um, you know, on the topic of cash, I mean, you're right, um, or financial incentives, mm-hmm. I, in the form of Funding some work, um, you know, is is something that generally might work. Um, but yes. in, in the form of, hey, you know, would you do this partnership on, in your spare time, and we'll you know give you ten thousand dollars to do with whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so, uh, now objectively, there have been situations where that has worked. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, where I've reached out to, to partners, like there was a guy at, at Wharton. I, I, don't, I don't want to use names in my examples. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, his topic was um, strategic planning. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said, look, we, we want to make sure we're doing this right. So we got the, you know, the, the marketing leadership team together. And we paid him, I think it was like $3,000 to come over for an hour and, mm-hmm. and give us a lecture on strategic planning. And, mm-hmm. and it, was, it was wonderful. So, mm-hmm. so sometimes money does work. And in fact... 
they <laughs> some who are, have done this uh, a few times have a fee structure, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so it you know it it does work under the right circumstances, but as a general rule, it's not always the right um, the, the most important incentive. And and one reason, at least that I've been told, why not, um, is because people who go into academia aren't necessarily profit-minded, right? If That's they were, true. then they'd be practitioners. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, money isn't, isn't really the kind of the carrot that, that makes, makes them, uh, you know, want to partner with you. Simple. Yeah, no, it's yeah. true. I think it's just not part of their self-concept to think that, you know, I'm uh, motivated by money. Yeah. Even though, I mean, like, you know, getting paid is nice, right? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> um, but, you know, if um, the the company is willing to cover some of the overhead, I think mm-hmm. that that would be really attractive as mm-hmm. well. Because in, in the business schools, we don't really write out for um, these large-scale grants that they do in um, the science field, science and medicine. Right. And so for more large-scale projects or even, you know, neuroimaging studies that might require uh, more uh, resources than a regular behavioral study, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, even uh, covering the scanning costs would be uh, really attractive to and, academics. Yeah, and so uh, I'm, I'm kind of I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent here, but mm-hmm. um, you know we're all aware of the replication crisis, mm-hmm. um, and and you know at least in my understanding it's due in part um, I don't know how big or small of a part, but due in part to you know the convenience samples used in academia, mm-hmm. um, you know we're basically they they give students some small incentive. Um, and then, you know, it's hard to replicate because, well, you know, well, there were students and, and it was a kind of a incentive that was uniquely mm-hmm. attracted to, to students. It doesn't necessarily work, you know, for moms or, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, whatever your target market happens to be. And sure. so would money, um, to be used to get a, you know, a quote unquote better quality sample, uh, be something that, um, academia would be interested in? I know I'm asking you to speak on behalf of all academia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm I'm just um, thinking through some of the issues here. Yeah. Sometimes uh, I think you know um, more heterogeneous samples mm-hmm. is really great in establishing generalizability, right? To see yep. whether you know uh, an effect is robust. Right. And. And especially if it's a, um, a large effect that is, you know, very meaningful and, and important, then I think, you know, having um, these heterogeneous samples would be really wonderful. Oftentimes, though, I mean, because we do publish uh, theory-based um, studies where the internal validity of the study, sort of, you know, how good the instruments are for measuring uh, what it is that you want to without the confounds and so on is what's important. It's almost like you don't want the, you know, the heterogeneous samples. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. So it sort of depends on on the purpose of the study and what the question is. So it's not necessarily that um, having these samples that are 
more representative of the population at large is going to uh, solve uh, the the problem. Okay. All right. That's that's fair. That's fair. Um, and so, I was just wondering, you know, kind of in the mind of of academia, would they jump at that as an incentive to say, yeah, I'd prefer not to use convenience samples, but that's really what I've got available to me and what I can afford. If you're willing to give me money so that we can, you know, buy a more representative sample, um, then by all means. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. You know, beyond the college sophomores or the college freshmen. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. Um, yeah, uh, I, you know, I've, I've known in some studies, you know, a bottle of wine will do pretty much anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to um, incentives, and this isn't necessarily an incentive, but I find another thing that, that really works um, to motivate uh, a, an academic partner is to be flexible. Um, mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, times I approached academia and said, hey, you know, this is my topic of interest. This is what I want to learn. And they'll say, um, you know, yeah, I, I understand what you're after. But from an academics perspective, that topic has already been studied, uh, mm-hmm. been studied, um, not in your context or for your category, but in, in other contexts and categories. And so that's not of interest to me. However, mm-hmm. if you were to, you know, add this twist to it, so that now we're entering new territory, you know, mm-hmm. then I'd be interested. So mm-hmm. uh, as the practitioner, if you were willing to, to, you know, kind of negotiate on, you know, what, what, we're, what we're after here, mm-hmm. then, um, then that, that's going to go a long way toward, toward a successful partnership, I think. Yeah, that, I think that's a great example of how something could come about and have it be a fruitful partnership. Yeah, and, and I think what that means is, you know, it, as a practitioner, when you're doing your annual learning plan, you don't, you don't want to have your entire learning plan be based on what you're going to get out of academic partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've often thought of these as um, supplemental to my learning plan. If, mm-hmm. if nothing comes out of it, then there's no loss you know, mm-hmm. for either of us. And if something brilliant and, and game-changing comes out of it, then even better, but um, I didn't. I didn't put all my eggs in the basket, which, which just may deteriorate <laughs> in the short or long term. Sure. Um, so it becomes kind of that extra thing that I that that I do in, as as the practitioner, um, in, in, and that's how I think about these partnerships. Yeah, and the same goes for academics as well. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, we often we don't know if our hypotheses are going to bear fruit, sure. and so you will layer on you know, different questions right. in case things don't, you know, work out. So, all right. So my next question is about, you know, the best way to manage a partnership. So, you know, you talked about, for example, timing and, mm-hmm. and they don't always align, right? And, you know, the, mm-hmm. the practitioner wants it within three months and the academic um, doesn't, doesn't feel like they're working against the timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you're the practitioner, you've got this partnership, things are in motion, but you just feel as though, my gosh, this thing is just, you know, dragging its feet. Mm-hmm. Um, h- how might you, and, and I know this is not an easy question, so I'm putting you on the spot here, but might how, how might you manage a situation like that? From a practitioner's standpoint? From a practitioner's mean? standpoint, yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, 
I think if you negotiate the timeline in advance and everyone signs off on it, there is, you know, some accountability that is already built in. And I think that um, the uh, practitioner probably needs to uh, stay right on top of it, right? So yeah. if so that no um, kind of deadlines are missed mm-hmm. and uh, just so that, you know, it, it's hard for academics to, you know, go off and do something else because after all, I've said, you know, I'll have it done in, in um, three months. And so that is the plan. Right. And everything does take longer than you think they will, you know, even after, of course, I know if, even after all these years like terrible at estimating, but, you know, hopefully you will um, account for that in the overall, you know, time budgeting. Right. And I think if the relationship between the, you know, parties is good, the, you know, the, the better the chances of you know, getting it done. So this sort of reminds me, you know, of a situation that uh, homeowners have with contractors. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So how do you make it? You know, uh, you can't really uh, institute penalties here, though, right? Right. Um, that's the the tough part. But if one could, then I think that that might include uh, that that might um, improve uh, compliance. Right. But yeah, no, but it is a it is a difficult thing. Uh, absolutely. So um, it is sort of incumbent upon the practitioner to figure out what, you know, the academics works working style might be and mm-hmm. what might keep them on task. It's almost like being a project manager. Absolutely. But but, it, but is it kind of a matter of, you know, the squeaky wheel or, or being the squeaky wheel? Um, mm. and and so just yeah. In that project I think, manager. Yeah. I think that, yes. yeah. I think that helps. Yeah. But of course, you know, it's a fine line. If you're right. too annoying, then they might stop <laughs> answering the calls. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But, uh, but you made a good point. You know, this, there's nothing unique about this situation in academic practitioner partnerships. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, it, behavior economics has a, um, an effect called a planning fallacy because it, it's kind of universal, right? And, mm-hmm. and the general rule of thumb is put, put together your, your absolute best estimate of how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take, and then double mm-hmm. both of those things. Right. Because um, that, that's the practicality of, of just how things work. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if it'd be possible to get some, you know, minimum level of guarantee from mm-hmm. the university, though. So if someone else, you know, within the business school, let's say, were to sign off on, on the plan, Right. You know, then there's someone internal to the organization that is also holding you accountable. So an academic might, you know, not slack off. Right? Yeah, good point. And and kind of to that point, is isn't there also kind of a built-in mechanism for project management? Meaning, is isn't it generally that the, you know, the the students are going to be doing the work? And yes. so, you know, yeah. if if students are there, the work gets done. If the students are gone, then the work stops. Uh, yes, unfortunately, that <laughs> tends to happen. Yeah, so so you really you know want to be aware of that and 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 manage the timeline accordingly. Um, and that is more the case the more senior the you know the investigator is. So if you have an assistant professor, they're probably less likely to uh, drop the ball. Oh, good point. Yeah, really good. Because they still need to you know get tenure. Yeah. Very good. Okay, so in terms of the um, 
you know, the challenges, the opportunities, um, what is a successful partnership, how might you go about one? Um, we went through all of the, the big questions that I had, and, and you've answered them marvelously. Is there anything else on this topic that, that we didn't talk about but, but should have? I guess I would just make a plug for thinking about the long-term interests mm -hmm. of a, a company. Oftentimes, the focus seems to be really in the short term, but, you know, the discovering ground truths, establishing test retest reliability, you know, doing work that informs predictive analytics, which is all the rage today. All these are, you know, important endeavors. And if some, you know, neuromarketing practitioners were willing to participate or take even a, you know, leadership role in all of this, I think the whole industry would be uh, better off. Yeah. Yeah. How true. Um, you know, and, and just, you know, kind of thinking back through my own experiences with the partnerships, one model that has worked well for me, and I wish I learned this sooner because I would have done it more often, mm -hmm. is, um, is, you know, ask that the academic partner, that their role be more of an advisor. Um, so, in, and, and, and so basically, you're going to hire a research supplier to do the work. Mm -hmm. um, and so yes. the role of the academic advisor is to come in and kind of observe the process um, and, and provide guidance throughout the work, you know, even mm -hmm. screening the survey, um, evaluating the models, um, even, you know, kind of going through the, the interpretations and conclusions and just, mm -hmm. you know, just make sure that that objectivity is in and and expertise is incorporated in, into the work. And you're, and you're not just getting, you know, whatever the supplier will come up with on their own. That yes. has worked really, really well. Because it's not a big burden on the, on the academic partner. That's um, correct. If it's a fun project, um, they're going to love it. Yeah, um, we learn from that. Sure. Um, you know, because you get to see real application of the work. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always um, have to be, you know, the advancement of human knowledge. Sometimes it could just be a really cool project. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, another thing that I've kind of learned relatedly is, you know, you talked about the level of somebody, the more junior that they are, the more likely to be doing the work themselves. Um, I've also found that the more senior they are, um, the more, uh, and I, I shouldn't generalize this because this is one example, but in this particular example, you know, this person had been department chair and, and dean and, you know, they've, they've achieved, you know, every academic goal one could ever have. Mm -hmm. um, and so at that point in her career, she just wanted to do fun stuff. Right. You know? And so I happen to have something that was really fun. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so, you know, you know, who you approach, um, um, you know, matters in terms of what, what's going to be of interest to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think um, you bring up an excellent point about the academic advisory role. Yeah. I do think that companies should avail themselves of that yes. so that, you know, the results don't seem like they, you know, come out of a black box. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially if you're breaking new ground. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and coming up with new, you know, um, algorithms, you know, in, in, the, in the day now of AI where... Yeah, you know, it's just head spinningly complicated. Um, exactly. To, to yeah. bring in an expert to you know to to kind of legitimize it, not to legitimize it, but but to mm -hmm. validate. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you're getting is real stuff. Uh, can, right. be, can be super, super helpful. So now let's transition to our second topic. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and this one is on neuroforecasting. Um, okay. And I love this part of your talk because it brought neuroscience to life, at, at least for me, mm-hmm. with respect to opportunities in neuromarketing. Um, you know, how, how as a practitioner do I, do I use neuromarketing? Um, or at least, um, you know, here's another way of using neuromarketing. Mm-hmm. Um, or I should say neuroscience, actually. And, um, and so I found that most neuro applications um, measure reactions to stimuli, mm-hmm. um, be they advertisements, be they packaging or other communications. But in this instance, it's used to predict and not just correlate behavior. So mm-hmm. love that. It was great, great, great discussion. Well, um, thank you. But before we jump into that, let's just, um, you know, because some of our listeners may be new to neuromarketing, uh, let alone neuroforecasting. So just to set the stage, can you just give us, you know, a, a uh, down-to-earth definition of neuromarketing um, and, and then also for neuroforecasting? Sure. Um, I think of neuromarketing as... Um, using a broad set of neuroscientific tools mm-hmm. and, you know, or neurophysiological tools. So it's not just, you know, neuroimaging, but it could be biometrics um, or even eye tracking to uh, basically collect marketing research data mm-hmm. uh, to inform some sort of, you know, a problem or a question. Whereas neuroforecasting is much more specific about taking, um, neural measures. And so this implies that uh, the neuroimaging measures, so the data that you collect in a scanner, Mm -hmm. and to a lesser extent, EEG signals, those are the two that you can use then to try to predict what um, people at the population level or out of sample might do. So what that means is that from a fairly small group of participants, that you collect neural measures from, you take those measures, and from that, there's enough signal there for you to be able to say, you know, which um, ads are going to, you know, perform well yeah. uh, in the marketplace. Good. Then, then just carrying that ball a little bit more forward. Um, uh-huh. Can you take us through? Because uh, you talked about this in your presentation. Can you take yes. us through some of the research on neuroforecasting that you've uh, seen or done in this area? Sure. It's relatively new. Um, I was just looking back at uh, the studies that have been done so far, and I would say there are about eight published neuroforecasting studies in really, you know, top-tier journals. And uh, it really um, allows us not just to, you know, take the neural activity and predict what individuals will do, but it's kind of powerful because you're forecasting aggregate choice at the population level. And so the first study was uh, published in 2012 by uh, Greg Burns and Sarah Moore at Emory, and they basically had 32 teenagers uh, listening to a 15-second uh, music clips while they're being scanned in a machine. And they were. this was actually a study that was done for some other purpose. But two years later, they realized that, you know, some of these uh, songs had gone on to become hits, hmm. right? And so then, um, so they took the neural measures, the brain activity in certain regions of the brain. And this is sort of theory-based work. You would expect activity in a certain subcortical area, like the nucleus accumbens, 
uh, might uh, forecast how people respond very positively to that music. And would that predict, you know, what um, become hits? And lo and behold, uh, they did. <laughs> um, it, you know, the findings weren't, you know, um, strong, but there was definitely uh, a some indication that this it wasn't a fluke. And the kicker here really is that the neural measures predict, but uh, the self-reports that they collected in the original study with the 32 adolescents did not, right? Because they also collected, you know, um, ratings about, you know, how much they liked it and, and so on. So you were saying that the, the music, um, the nucleus accumbens response to the music being played predicted the hits. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and, and, and by extension, um, you could apply this to advertising, advertising, right? And, you know, yes. if you get that same type of positive arousal or, um, or approach uh, reaction from the nucleus accumbens when exposed to your advertisement, um, you can predict the, the success um, of that advertisement. Yes. Okay. Got it. Um, very cool. That's a, that's a really, really great application for that. Yeah, and we were uh, really intrigued by these you know, initial findings. And so subsequently, there have been other studies. And so there is a German group that used, I believe it was commercials, mm -hmm. to and, and tracked um, sales in a supermarket, for okay. instance. Uh, and uh, um, same sort of thing with loan appeals on Kiva. This is a microlending um, site. And in my own work with uh, Brian Knudsen and Alex Janewski, we have uh, shown this with uh, crowdfunding appeals on Kickstarter. So by collecting their neural signatures when they are viewing um, projects, Kickstarter projects in the scanner, we could... Uh, forecast which of these would be more likely to be funded than not. And so the, the, only, um, the only measures that did that were the nucleus accumbens activation uh, of the 30 or so subjects in the scanner. So again, their self ratings uh, did not, or, you know, ratings about how, how much they liked the, you know, the projects or how likely they thought it would be funded. Yeah, interesting. Yet, yet another example of what consumers say isn't always what they do. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so how do you see neural forecasting being used in the future? Um, you know, how might we expect mm -hmm. marketers to use this to improve sure. the effectiveness of their marketing efforts? Right. So it's still early days, and um, I, you know, because as an academic, we have to qualify everything. Um, we don't know how well it generalizes to various domains or even different types of stimuli, or whether you know these effects even will hold in other cultures. So there's a lot of work to be done. But you know, based on kind of the understanding of the underlying brain process and mechanisms, mm -hmm. we know what these. Um, brain measures are um, accessing that can't be done via traditional methods such as surveys, right? right. And so um, you don't, so knowing that, you know, if you can activate this area, then you know reliably that you may be able to persuade someone, for instance, uh, more effectively. And so the, you know, that 
some principles that lead to you to identify stimuli that would elicit these kinds of neural signatures um, may um, may be very useful in some domains, like, you know, when you're trying to forecast whether a movie is going to become a hit or something like that. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and but more importantly, I think what we want to do eventually is to identify less, co uh, less costly and more scalable methods, uh, perhaps, you know, leveraging EEG, mm -hmm. um, that would be sufficiently good enough indices of the, the neural activity that we can only measure with the fMRI and then do that to um, use neural forecasting in, in the wild. Right. Because, you know, um, fMRI is just not scalable, but it helps us to do uh, the theory based work. Right. Um, and then we can validate some of these other methods. Yes. And, and so. All right. So let's say I'm a practitioner. I'm, I'm listening to this and saying, I love this idea. I want to do it. Um, and so, you know, now you're thinking about, all right, well, you know, who, what what supplier is going to be capable of doing this? Is this so new that, you know, you really got to kind of proceed with caution? Uh, it is new and we should proceed with caution. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And uh, I, there are very few um, neuromarketing uh, vendors that collect fMRI measures anyway. It's just a handful. Sure. So most of them will use EEG plus, you know, biometrics or actually EEG. You can also think of it as a biometric tool. Right. Um, and... And honestly, I can't really answer this question because I don't know what algorithms are being used by the companies. So it could very well be that they are, you know, accessing, um, you know, in part the nucleus accumbens, but right. I, I don't know. So here's a great example of a potential academic partnership where if you find a supplier that claims to have this as a, a capability, you can say, great, yeah. let's work together. But by the way, I'm going to pull in this uh, expert over in academia who's going to right. make sure that I'm not just being sold a bill of goods here. Exactly. So you, you concluded your presentation with a call to action uh, for both academia and industry. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember if it was... Um, on, on the first topic we talked about of partnerships um, or the second part on neuroforecasting or, or kind of both of those things. Um, it's probably both. <laughs> take, take us through the call to action because, um, you know, it was a really nice distillation of really kind of what you want people to take away from these topics. Yeah, so I believe I had a call to action for practitioners as opposed to, you know, academics. I think we, you know, the academics also need to do their part and meet in the middle. But for practitioners, you know, building and developing relationships with academic researchers, I think would be valuable. Mm -hmm. Learn, inform and challenge, you know, and um, identify and tackle questions, problems, issues that could be of mutual interest or benefit. Uh, but, you know, set reasonable and realistic expectations and be willing to champion uh, collaborative work. Uh, so those are some of the things. And then I think, you know, making the case that um, scientific rigor is important and necessary to address uh, marketing problems, especially in this day and age with, you know, big data. I we really sorely need uh, good theory because that's where, how you figure out, you know, why you look and where to look. And uh, a lot of the 
you know, the data mining approaches these days, frankly, worry me a bit. Um, uh, yes. Right. Um, and so managers should really strive to understand kind of the underlying cause of uh, whatever the, an emerging uh, trends might be. Otherwise, you're reinventing the wheel over and over again. So I would like for us to really value um the theory-based work, as well as, you know, everything, all the, you know, wonderful computational tools that are, that we have uh, available to us today. Yes. Um, so, so great points um, kind of all around and, and, you know, especially at least for me, the scientific rigor and, and the point that you made about, um, you know, big data and, uh, you know, these, these massive data sets that we're now working with um, mm -hmm. to create AI models and, um, and, you know, this is not um, uncomplicated. And, um, right. and, and the devil's absolutely in the details on this. Mm -hmm. But it, it's too much for a practitioner to, to be able to understand, you know, unless, mm -hmm. unless they just have this as their specialty and they are a true bona fide data scientist. Right. Um, um, otherwise, you just really, it comes down to trust. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's great to have the involvement of academia to be able to help us get to the next levels in these area. I know there's been a lot of um, disappointment with respect mm -hmm. to big data. I think there's been um, the expectations of what it can do are, are you know, grossly exaggerated. Mm -hmm. um, and the cost of creating an internal capability have been grossly under exaggerated. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it just really hasn't produced um, you know, kind of the return that I think people expected. Um, now, there are exceptions, of course. Yes. But, um, but I think generally speaking, that's, that's been my observation. So, yeah, me um, too. So and I, and I think what academics do really well vis-a-vis -vis the practitioners is to generate theory. And we know how to do that and yes. develop sharp hypotheses against where you can, you know, um, uh, you can uh, test data against, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that puts you know, structure on the problem so that anything that's unobserved or latent information can be properly accounted for while making inferences, you know, yes. um, yep. that's my pitch. Well, keyword you just said is structure. Um, and that's, you know, a, a, among the list of, of things that you get when working with an academic, you know, you get someone who, who is objective, you get someone who doesn't have an ax to grind. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't have skin in the game. No, exactly. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and how great is that? Because you've got kind of bias on, you know, on the supplier and the client, you know, everyone wants to get the result that the client's looking for and academia, right. they don't care. Um, yes. So uh, that's just kind of part of their process. So, um, you know, I think it's recognizing that we do need each other um, and just, you know, being persistent and finding ways to make it work. It's not always going to mm -hmm. work. Um, no. and, and there are reasons for that, and they can't always be overcome, but, but absolutely try. Um, you know, if, if nothing else, you're going to learn from every, every, time, every attempt that you make. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah, so I think it's uh, – we have a lot of um, – I mean, we, there's cost for optimism as well, so I don't want to, you know, uh, sort of – and on a pessimistic note uh, <laughs> that, you know, we're not doing enough. Um, and I, um, it's just that translational work is difficult, right? And yep. it requires experts who understand, you know, both neuroscience and business world. But yep. the good news is that we are seeing more of them in, in the business school uh, community. Yeah. And, and, um, and uh, I would just kind of echo your, your desire to end on a positive note. I would say, you know, it's worth the effort. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so Carolyn, this has been really terrific. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, if, if anyone wants to learn more about you and the work that you're doing or have done um, in consumer neuroscience, uh, it, are, are you a, a available for people to reach you? Do you have a, a website? Um, oh, sure. You know, a good way for people to connect? Yeah, and, um, well, maybe uh, the best way is to just uh, drop me an email at y-o-o-n-c at u-m-i-c-h dot e-d-u. Terrific. I should be easy to find using Google. Yeah, well, you know, kind of going back to how do you find a partner, Google can also be a great resource for that. Too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Agreed. Well, well, thanks, Carolyn. It's really been great speaking with you. Uh, thanks for taking the time to, to take us through this. And, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, me too. Thank you so much. Sure it's thing. been a pleasure. Great. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics.